Turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And as you are able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word beginning in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about, about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that as we read and hear your word, that our hearts would perceive you rightly, that we would feel the weight of your glory, the depth of our sin, and the glory of the salvation that you offer to us. We pray that you would do this work now through your spirit in our hearts and in our minds for your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. In our high school Sunday school class, we've begun a series on worldviews. Worldviews. It's a popular term these days, even outside of the church. Everyone has one, but very few are aware of it and even fewer can explain or defend their worldview. 
There are many levels of precision and detail when it comes to discussing worldviews, but every worldview answers the basic fundamental questions of life. The questions that every grown person will ask at some point in their life. Who am I? How did I get here? Why am I here? Where am I going? What is wrong with this world? Is there a God? Who is He? Is He knowable? And if so, how can He be known? Now, these basic questions are easy for any Christian who knows their Bible. But if you talk with your neighbors and your friends, if you talk with your family and coworkers, you'll find that apart from Christianity, there is no coherent system of thought. There is no other way of viewing the world that answers these questions in an internally consistent way and also in a way that is consistent with our day-to-day experiences. Those around you, those we live with, that we walk with day by day, that we greet in the morning or say goodbye to in the afternoon, have no concept of truth in this world. They have bits and pieces which do not fit together. And the more you talk with them, the more you realize they just don't get it. Now before we look at this text, 2 Corinthians 5, and see the wonder of what Paul is telling us there, I want to step back and answer the question, what is wrong with this world? Everyone wants an answer to that. Everyone wants an answer. And we have so many different theories about what's wrong with the world. Some say that it is the government. Some that it is economics. Some that it is the heart. Everyone has a theory. What does the Bible tell us? What is wrong with this world? And I want to get the answer to that in Romans chapter 1. Turn there with me to Romans chapter 1. And we will hear in no uncertain terms what is wrong with this world. Romans chapter 1 and beginning in verse 18. What does God think is wrong with this world? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his divine attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools 
and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Before we can understand the glory of what is found in 2 Corinthians 5, we have to understand how dire our situation is, not only as individuals, but as a world. God's wrath is revealed against unrighteousness. We, in our unrighteousness, suppress the truth. We become futile in our thinking. Our hearts are darkened. We profess to be wise, but we are fools and God has turned us over to the lusts of our hearts. And we have become impure, dishonorable, debased. We live our lives doing what ought not to be done. And even though we know those who do such things deserve to die, we not only do them, we give approval to those who do the same. Why does this world seem so broken? What's wrong with me and you? What's wrong with this world? Our unrighteousness has ruined us. It has corrupted our hearts and our minds, and it has cast us upon a slope to certain and utter destruction. Jonathan Edwards said, nearly 275 years ago. Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead. And to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell 
And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. And your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and the best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. Our situation is dire. We have no solution on our own. The foolish lies that you hear the world proclaim, the suggested solutions that are in the news, you know will not work. But with this understanding of our situation, turn back to 2 Corinthians 5 and smell now the sweetness of Paul's message. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us we implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Knowing the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against us and our ungodliness, Let's look at this reconciliation which we desperately need. The first thing that we see about this reconciliation is that reconciliation starts with God. Reconciliation starts with God. Every other religion, every other worldview puts man at the center it puts man at the position of initiator. If you want to fix your problem, you have to do something about it. That simply will not do. Not only is sinful man incapable of reconciling himself to God, he wants nothing to do with God. The unnatural man is at war with God. He hates him. Remember Romans 3.11, there is no one who seeks after God. Not only is unrighteous un, or natural man completely incapable of reconciling himself to God, he doesn't want anything to do with reconciliation. Because we insist that we are wise we pretend as though we have no problem. We act as though we really are pretty good. We become fools. Even though we are corrupt, we say we are righteous. 
The solution can't come from us. It can't come from man. But Paul tells us that reconciliation is planned by God. It is planned by God. Therefore, or I'm sorry, verse 18, all this is from God. And what did God do? All this is from God who reconciled us to himself. The reason there is any hope for this world is not because man is good enough and will one day figure things out. The only reason there is hope for us in this world is because God will act according to his plan. Because God will initiate it. He planned it. Listen to 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. So listen to this. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. You know when God figured this out? Before it all started. God, this is not plan B. This is plan A. God knows what he is doing. And he had a plan from the beginning to bring back his fallen children. To bring back his alienated creation. Reconciliation is planned by God. He knew it all along. He knew what he was doing. It was planned by God. And if you look at verse 18, you see that it is God himself who is reconciling us to himself. He does it through Christ, but it is in the heart of God, it is the action of God to reconcile us to himself. And how did he accomplish that reconciliation? He accomplished it through Christ. Reconciliation is accomplished through Christ. Now we're going to look at that more closely toward the end. So we're not going to spend time on it now, but bear in mind that God reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And then notice at the end of verse 18, not only did God reconcile us to himself, but reconciliation is given to us. Look at the end of verse 18, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So God not only reconciles us to himself through Christ, but he then gives to us, those who have been reconciled, the ministry of reconciliation. It is given to us. Now, I, dis, I dislike the translation ministry. It's, it's completely accurate. No, don't, don't worry about that. It's totally accurate. But the connotation, I don't like. Because what happens when you hear the word ministry or minister is that you think, oh, that's for someone else. That, that's for the professionals. That's for the theologians. That's for the seminarians. I, I certainly couldn't do that. Well, the, the word ministry, the idea behind ministry is one of service. It's one of work. 
And whoever it is that God has reconciled, God has also given the work of reconciliation. So that everyone in this room, not just me or the elders, everyone in this room who has been reconciled to God is entrusted with this work of reconciliation. That is why we are here. That is the goal of our life. That is the aim of what we are doing. It is the work of reconciliation. Interestingly, there's even some commentators in verse 18 who say it's really odd that Paul would change what he means by us so abruptly. As if to say, he's clearly talking only about ministers in this half of the verse, but he's talking about everyone in this half of the verse. No, 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 no. All those that Christ has reconciled to himself, he gives this ministry, this work of reconciliation. He accomplished it through Christ and he gave it to us. This ministry is given to all of us. So God plans it, he accomplishes it through Christ, and then he gives the work of it, the work of reconciliation to us. So reconciliation begins with God, and then second we see that reconciliation does not end with us. Reconciliation does not end with us. It is not over now that we have been reconciled. Look at verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Who is he reconciling to himself? Not just us. Us, he has reconciled. But who is he about to reconcile? Who is he after reconciling? It is the world. Our reconciliation isn't the end game. The reconciliation of the world is what God is after. God pursues the world. He always has. This isn't new. Listen to Psalm 67. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and give the nations and guide the nations upon the earth. Who is called to worship him? Who is called to praise him? All the peoples, all the nations. God is after them all. He wants all of them. He's always been about reconciliation for all peoples. And not only does he pursue the world, but he is patient with the world. This is marvelous. Now, the theological implications of this can get a little complicated, but the basic truth is not difficult to understand. God did not count their trespasses against them. He was patient. We read in Romans 1 that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. But we read last week at the end of Zechariah, what it looks like when it's not just revealed. And that hasn't happened yet. When God's wrath is manifest, when it is physically a reality, 
God's enemies will melt. They will rot as they stand. Their eyes and their tongues will melt. That's not happening right now. Why? Because of God's patience. God is patient. He has not yet ended the lives of his enemies. He is holding out for reconciliation. When Adam and Eve were told that they would die in the day that they ate the fruit, did you ever wonder why when they ate the fruit, they didn't drop dead? And why when we sin against God, does God not instantly strike us down? It is not because of our goodness. It's not because it's really not as bad as we thought it would be. It is because God is patient with us. He is patient. He plans reconciliation. If it weren't for Christ and His work, we would all have been utterly destroyed before reconciliation was even possible. But because of Christ's work, God is able to bring us into reconciliation. Listen again to Edwards in the same sermon that I quoted earlier. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in yours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet, tis nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. Tis to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night that you were suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand holds you up. The terror of His wrath cannot take away the mercy and the patience that he is showing us now by not having dropped us into the pit. Reconciliation doesn't end with us. God is pursuing the world, and he is being patient with the world, and God sends us to the world. 
In verse 18, Paul said, God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And here in verse 19, we are told that God is entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. For those of us who have been reconciled to God, who are Christians, this has profound implications for who we are and why we are here. Worldview significance is major. God has given us a work of reconciliation. And part of that task is to take God's message to the world, the message of reconciliation. If you have been reconciled to God, then you are no longer at war with Him. And if you are no longer at war with Him, then you are on His side. And what is it that God is about? He is pursuing the world. And He is patient with the world. And so as His redeemed, as His people, we ought to be about the same work. Pursuing the world that the world might be reconciled to God. Now the third thing that we see is that reconciliation continues through us. It continues through us. And I'm just going to expand on this last point as Paul does in 20 and 21. Look first at verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is where the rubber hits the road for us as Christians. This is where we find out the implications of our worldview. In fact, this is where we find out what our worldview really is. Whether what we say we believe, we actually believe. And Paul explains three aspects of our work of reconciliation with God. Three aspects to this work. First, we are representatives of Christ. We are representatives of Christ. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Well, why are we ambassadors? Because God gave to us the work of reconciliation and God entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. So what are we? We are ambassadors. Now imagine that an ambassador arrived from Iran, came to U.S. soil to meet with Congress and the president. And after months of claiming that they wanted some sort of peace with the United States, This ambassador shows up and he refuses to shake hands with anyone, looks no one in the eye, is gruff, rude, brings no gifts, won't even accept the gifts that we offer. And during the debates or conversations, he appears completely uninterested. He gives no indication of desiring peace. If that happened, even the liberals might question the pact. Why? Because what they're saying over here isn't reflected in this man who is representing them. He represents Iran to us. And if what they're telling us doesn't match what this man is saying, the ambassador is bad. 
If the ruler says peace, but the ambassador says war, the ambassador is terrible. He has failed. And if the ruler says war, but the ambassador says peace, he is likewise a failure. Now we are ambassadors for Christ, and yet so often we are poor ambassadors. We say war when God has said peace. And we say peace when God has declared war. Think about the people in your life that you really don't like. Think about the rude clerk at the grocery store, the pushy telemarketer who calls you seven at night, the messy neighbor who never cleans up his yard, the disheveled punk at the gas station, the vulgar cousin that you have to have Thanksgiving with, the harsh stepfather, the ungrateful son or daughter. Did you remember that you're an ambassador for Christ? The way that we treat our enemies tells the world the way that God treats his enemies. So you're offended by his language. You're offended by the way they treated you. More than God was offended by you before he saved your depraved soul? No way. No way. The offense that God has against us far outweighs any personal offense that we might have against the rest of the world. We're representatives of Christ. And as such, it's not our aim to please ourselves. We're not in this life for ourselves. We are his representatives, his ambassadors. We care about the one who sent us. So our personal offenses, tastes, preferences, those aren't the issue. If Christ is willing to be reconciled to this mess of a person, surely we too can be willing to reconcile. And as a representative of Christ, what is it that you're telling those around you? As Christ's ambassador, what do you tell your coworkers about Christ through your laziness at work? What do your children learn about Christ from the way that you respond to their disobedience? What does your unbelieving spouse learn about Christ when you are patient with them? We're representing Christ to the world, both in positive ways and in negative ways. We have to live our lives not for our own pleasure, but as faithful representatives of the one who sent us. So the first aspect of this work of reconciliation is that we live our lives as representatives of Christ. We live our lives as representatives And as representatives, we set aside our personal feelings for the sake of the one we represent. And the second aspect of this work is that we announce God's desire for reconciliation. We announce God's desire for reconciliation. Now, if you thought perhaps in the last point I was saying that we should become doormats, 
that we should buy something from that pushy telemarketer or approve of the junkyard next door or join in with our vulgar cousin at Thanksgiving or indulge our ungrateful children by no means, by no means. But whatever our reaction and treatment is of those situations, we can't miss this. God is making his appeal through us. We cannot fail to make that appeal to them, no matter how wicked and depraved they are. This is why we're here. We're not here on this planet to have nice retirements or to get a big house or to watch lots of movies or win lots of games. We're here as ambassadors. We're imploring on behalf of God, imploring with God's enemies to be reconciled to him. So if your personal offense keeps somebody from this appeal, then something is wrong. But I find incredible strength in this appeal. I think it's very helpful. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. A short statement, but it's loaded with implications. One, we're not giving our opinion. God is speaking through us. He is making his appeal through us. This isn't about me against you. This is not my opinion against yours. Two, we're speaking on behalf of the creator of the universe. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Three, you, Mr. Punk at the gas station, you have a problem with God. You have a problem with sin. Because if you didn't, you would not need to be reconciled to God. This statement, be reconciled to God, shows us without question that we have a serious problem. We are at war with God. And so I am not suggesting make peace with all of those people and pretend as though everything is fine. No. But reconciliation is possible. Fourth here in this just in this sentence, you, harsh stepfather, who ridiculed me as a teenager, who never came to one of my games, who even struck me on one occasion when he was drunk, you, Mr. Stepfather, even you can be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. It is possible. It is offered Oh, the riches of God's grace that we, the unrighteous, we who have suppressed the truth, who have become debased and darkened in our minds, we are offered reconciliation. How sweet to hear those words. Be reconciled to God. And even here this morning, some of you have not been reconciled to God. You have suppressed the truth your whole life. And now God holds you as you would a loathsome insect over a fire. Why have you not yet descended? Because God's merciful hand is holding you up. And we implore you, be reconciled to God. 
it is possible. How is this reconciliation possible? How can a just God whose wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness be reconciled to a vile sinner? Well, that's the third aspect of our work. We explain God's plan for reconciliation. We explain God's plan for reconciliation. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This is why back in verse 18, Paul said that it was through Christ that God reconciled us to Himself. This is the explanation that was merely implied in verse 18. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Because on the cross, God treated Christ, who had no sin of his own, as if he had committed the sin of every believer who would ever believe, so that in Christ, we who believe might be treated as if we had done all the righteousness that Christ did upon this earth. God transferred the guilt of everyone who would believe in Christ onto those who would believe so that God could transfer the righteousness of Christ upon us. It is not one-sided. It is not one-sided. It is a substitution. Not only did he take our place, but we get to take his. And that is why Paul is saying over and over, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Because we are his now substitute. We are in him. He died on our behalf. We live on his. Paul says it this way in Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit or through the, the promised spirit through faith. We earned what? By our unrighteousness. God's wrath, God's curse. Christ earned what? By his righteousness. God's blessing, God's favor. And though God would have poured out his blessing upon Christ, Christ came on our behalf and God's wrath for us was poured out on him. So that now in Christ, all the blessings that God had for Christ are ours. They're ours. This is the glorious doctrine of substitution. And there is no work that you can do to earn this. If there was, it wouldn't be needed. But there is one requirement. Faith. That you stop trusting in your own good works and that instead you trust in Christ. I don't mean by faith that you assent to its reality. Satan does that. What I mean by faith is that you depend upon its truth. And if you do, 
You're not going to go away from here this morning with the going to heaven box checked. You will be transformed into an ambassador for Christ. So that if you came in here this morning as God's enemy, you can walk out through faith as his new ambassador. Your life will not be the same. And if it is, your belief, James says, is dead. Let me end with Paul's words from 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Let us live as Christ's representatives no longer living for ourselves, but living for the one who died and was raised on our behalf. And let us go to our messy neighbors and our vulgar cousins and proclaim to them, we appeal, God is appealing through us. We implore you, be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts are full of praise for your goodness to us. That though all our lives we suppressed the truth, that we lived in ungodliness and unrighteousness, you in your forbearance and patience did not count our trespasses against us, but you were patient and you pursued us and you offered to us reconciliation through the death of your son. And we praise you, Lord, that you did it that way, that you might receive all the praise and all the glory. And we pray, Lord, now that we have been entrusted with this work and message of reconciliation, that we would be faithful ambassadors of Christ, that the way that we interact with those around us would say, not that we are about ourselves, but that we are representing you. May we honor your name in the way that we represent it and bask in the goodness that you have shown us in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. You are dismissed.